Um, there was a pastor, a visiting pastor in the islands of the Bahamas. He'd been there for a while. And uh, one day a lady in his congregation came to see him where he was staying. And uh, she had a problem with her son. He was a little fella. And um, she talked to the pastor. She said, uh, my son, little Johnny, he has a problem, pastor. He can't tell the truth. He's okay. Says he tells lies all the time. Even when he doesn't need to tell a lie, he's not in trouble. He just makes up stuff, just lies all the time. So could you just please talk to him, try and help him? Would you mind doing it? And he said, sure, I'll be glad to. i tell you what I'll do. After church next Sunday, I'll sit down and talk with him after church. And so the pastor thought about it. He thought the best way to take care of this would be to tell this little boy just an outrageous story. There's no way it could be true. And then he could teach him the value of truth. So sure enough, after church, the visiting pastor, he sat down with little Johnny. And he said, Johnny, I want to tell you a story. He says, years ago, I was doing a revival series on an island right near here where we are in the Bahamas. And uh, we got to the end of the service and, and the end of the week and the revival, and God had been moving in a mighty way, and people were getting saved, and lives were being changed. And, and lo and behold, it was the last Sunday, and all of a sudden, the back door of the church just burst open, and this 12-foot-tall polar bear marched into the church. And everybody in the pews were just frozen in fear and terror. And that polar bear was walking down, eating and killing everybody in the church. And he got all the way down the front, and I'm frozen in fear. I'm standing behind the pulpit, don't know what to do. And he's coming at me, and all of a sudden, there's a bark. And in the back of the church, this little tiny chihuahua, a little baby golden puppy is back there. He's, bark, 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 bark. And that little chihuahua ran all the way to the front of that church, jumped on that big polar bear, bit him and killed him. He said, now, John, do you believe that story? Johnny thought for a minute. He said, yes, sir, I do. That was my dog. Yeah, you know, sometimes we hear an outrageous story, right? And we wonder, could that be true? Well, today, I want to uh, draw your attention to a couple of passages in Scripture that are just so provocative with the accuracy of the prophetic that was given through them centuries ago. It makes you wonder... Is it true? But I want to hope that when you leave today, you will realize that what I tell you is true. It will increase your faith in Scripture. It will increase your reliability that you have on Jesus coming and dying for your sins and for Jesus Christ being who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Now, just understand that, that when Jesus is the Son of God, he is basically like God downloaded into a physical body of a living person. And I hope today when you leave, your faith is greater than when you entered this pavilion today. And I learned today this is not called the pavilion. So I've been misdirecting people for weeks, for months, for worship, which probably explains why some people aren't here. They're up somewhere else trying to worship today. So listen, two weeks ago, we looked at this idea of who is your master. And we came to the reality that everybody has a master. It's just a question of who your master is. And I hope that Jesus is your master. And then last week, we looked at this idea of who is your enemy. And you have an enemy that's always lurking in the shadows, trying to set you off track, to take away from you the things that you value and you care about. And I hope this week that you were able to maybe recognize your enemy when he came at you with some of his attacks. And you could turn to Jesus and call on him to help you uh, when you were vulnerable and alone this week. So today I want to look at another aspect of your new relationship you have with God through Jesus. And that is this. How are you healed? How are you healed? Now, salvation is like a beautiful diamond. 
If you think of a diamond setting in a piece of furniture, there's a, there's a way you can take that diamond, you can turn it, and the light will catch it, and you'll see all these different facets and colors in it, and your salvation is like that precious stone. There's all these different ways you can look at it, and it will always appear different and more beautiful to you, and you'll see things you've never seen before. The light will catch it in a different angle. So today, I want to take you back in time, 2,700 years, and I want to show you something amazing. I want to show you one of the greatest mysteries in Scripture. Now, we're all aware that Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, right? We celebrate that. It's called Christmas. And most of the world celebrates Christmas, even those who don't believe in God or Jesus. They just like to give presents, and they celebrate that idea. Now, we also we know about this, right? The crucifixion, where Jesus came and he dies on a cross, on a Roman cross. And there's these Roman soldiers. You've seen them in movies before, portrayed. And they take him, and he dies, and he's buried in a tomb. And three days later, death can no longer hold him. He conquers death, and he comes out of the grave. And people start seeing this risen rabbi, this Jesus of Nazareth. They start seeing him around town. He was once dead, but now twice alive. But what you may not know is the history of that cross. You see, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. The Persians did. Now, the people today who live in the country we call Iran, those are Persians. And those are the first people that ever took a piece of wood and nailed somebody to it and raised them up over the earth to kill them in execution. The first crucifixion took place 400 years before Jesus was born. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the first detailed written account of what happens during the crucifixion was written 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. In fact, there are two passages of Scripture that talk about it in great detail, incredible detail, and they give very specific aspects of the crucifixion of Jesus. Both of them were written 178 years before anyone on earth had ever been crucified, 600 years before Jesus was executed by the Roman Empire on a cross outside of Jerusalem. So as we dive in today and look at this remarkable account of the death of Jesus, written 600 years before it took place, let me ask you a question. How were you healed? Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful that you love us, you chase us down, and you give us a record of what has happened and what will happen. Help me today, Lord, to let your spirit flow through me. Let these words be your words. Let they pierce our hearts and conform us and mold us to be more like you. Equip us and ready us for your world, for heaven. May we be better when we leave than we came in. May we cleave to your cross for our salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen. So let me tell you where you're going to be today in the Bible. I want you to look at a certain two big passages. The first one is in the book of Psalms. So um, it's not the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leaves me to lie down beside green pastures, he restoreth my soul. No, it's the one just before that. It's the 22nd Psalm. So, and that's the one that begins with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if those words sound familiar to you, it's because you've probably heard them before. Those were some of the last words uttered by Jesus as he was dying on the cross. There are, in fact, seven words or phrases that Jesus said before he died or when he was dying on the cross, and they're recorded for us. They're written down in the Bible. Now, what you may not know is that the Bible, when it was first written, it did not have chapters and verses. Now, legend and history disagree about when and how chapters and verses came to be 
in the scriptures, but I will tell you this, it really helped us today in terms of our study of scripture and the Bible. So when Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says, uh, he could have said this, and I'm going to tell you why I'm going to say this. He could have said this, hanging on the cross, he could have said, please, everybody look up Psalm 22 when all this is over, and see how prophetic even my death is, as you witness me dying here on this cross, so you will see this is your final warning, especially to you religious leaders, to y'all, so you know that I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies that are ever given about the Messiah, and in three days, y'all will see me rise again, peace out, goodbye. However, he could have said that. However, it is believed that when Jesus said those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is signaling to everyone there, look at this Psalm 22, what we call Psalm 22 today. Because the rabbis and the priests, they would have used the beginning of a psalm as a way to identify when they want to uh, study it. Much like earlier when I said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some of you, immediately your mind went to the 23rd Psalm and you thought about those words and how you may have learned that as a child in school. So I want to take you very quickly through Psalm 22, and I want to connect some of the events of that day when Jesus died on the cross. And then I want to take you to another passage, Isaiah 53. And then, um, if you could just open your Bible. If you open your Bible right to the middle, you'll land probably in the Psalms. You can turn to Psalm 22, and we're going to begin with the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus is on the cross, he chose to put himself in separation from God the Father in heaven. Jesus took on all the sins of the world, not just for those people who were around him at that point. He took on all the sins for the people who would ever live before. He took on all the sins for all the people who would ever live in the, in the future. And he took all those sins on him. And then God the Father, because he is holy, because he cannot tolerate sin, he could no longer look on his son. He had to separate himself from his son. And the first time in history, the Trinity was severed. In fact, history tells us that that day on the cross, the sun itself grew dark. It was almost as if symbolically God was turning his back on his son and refusing to allow light to shine on the world. Now, it's not just recorded in the Bible as we see it, but the Chinese also record a solar eclipse on the day that Jesus died. If you look down at verses 6 and 7, we see these words, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by men. All who see me mock me, and they sneer, they shake their heads. Now, the old King James put this, uh, puts it like this. It says this, all they that see me laugh, <laughs> and they scorn, <laughs> and they just shoot their lip off at you. Now, I know that uh, some of you, like me, you spend time around some rough men. You spend time around construction workers, and dock workers, and athletes, and military men. And you know what? There's something about men in those settings. They can be so degrading to other men. They can be so humiliating and just downright mean. So when Jesus is on that Roman cross, and he's surrounded by those Roman soldiers, don't you know that they had to say some of the foulest things to him? Some of the most degrading things to Jesus. All that see me laugh and scorn me. Now, do you know what that word scorn means in Hebrew? It means to speak like a barbarian in a foreign language. Now, let me tell you something here. The Roman soldiers spoke Latin. Jesus spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. 
when they were standing at that cross and they were laughing at him and they were slinging their profanities at him, they were saying it most likely in Latin. It was a foreign language to Jesus. It was not the language of his birth. Isn't that just an amazing detail of the crucifixion of Jesus? Now catch this other detail. When they're laughing and mocking at him, those soldiers, most of those Roman soldiers, would have been people whose lands had been conquered by Rome on the outside edge of the empire. The Romans, these noble people who were born Romans, would have looked at these soldiers and these people and called them barbarians. And those barbarians, many of them, saw who the winning side was, and they joined the Roman army. They joined the legion. And they would have literally been barbarians at the foot of the cross, insulting Jesus with foul words in a foreign language. Isn't that amazing? The level of detail that's in here. Now think about this. All of that happened and was predicted 600 years before it took place. Go down to verse 12. I'm, this, this chapter is full of things. I'm just going to pull a few, few of them out for you. Many bulls have surrounded me. Mighty ones from Bashan have compassed me. Now, you need to know a few things about this place, Bashan. It's a territory. It's a region of Israel. And it's known for a few things. It's known for growing really strong, mighty oak trees. It's a fertile land where, where grain grows and everything grows richly and fertilely. It's, and they grow tremendous cattle there. Bulls get to be huge. Now, you think about this. The soldiers around Jesus, those Roman soldiers, I bet they were beefy. I bet they were strong. I bet you would say they were strong as an ox. And they were surrounding him. They were circling him. But there's more. Bashan was the last kingdom ruled by the Raphaim, a satanically controlled and inspired race of people. In Deuteronomy 3.11, it says this, For only Og, king of Bashan, Remain the remnant of the giants. In verse 13 in chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, it says this, All the region of Argob was, with all Bashan, was called the land of the giants, the Raphaim. So who were the Raphaim? These were a group of Satan's fallen angels. And they worked with people, and they tried to empower them to try and frustrate the redemptive plan of God. In fact, the first time we introduced these evil men is in Genesis chapter 6, before the flood. And Moses used language to describe them. The same language David used. David called them the mighty ones of Bashan. And Moses in Genesis 6, 4 described their offspring as the fallen angels as mighty men of old, men of renown. So these soldiers, unknown to them, they are cooperating in the plans of Satan to snuff out the life of Jesus on earth. But there's one more piece of information we can mine from this little tiny verse. The Roman soldiers... Biblical scholars say this in verse 12. There's something like this. They'll say a word like this. Your translation may read this. The mighty ones of Bashan have encompassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have circled me. Strong bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. Well, that word, that English word that we use in our translation that says surrounded or encompassed and encircled, in Hebrew, that word has another meaning. It has a second possible meaning. Do you remember that it's those vicious Roman soldiers that fashioned that crown of thorns, those long thorns, and they forced it onto his head, into his skull, and they pressed it onto him, and then they covered him in that purple robe, and they mocked him, 
and they, they took and they blindfolded him and they bowed before him as king and they would slap his face and they would say, who, who hit you? God, you think you're God? You think you're the son of God? Well, you tell me, God, who just hit you? The word encircled can also mean crowned. It literally means crowned. And that's just what they did. But they did it just the way it's described. Hundreds of years before it happened, and they fashioned that crown, and those Roman soldiers had no idea they were fulfilling prophecy. It dates back, some scholars say it dates back a thousand years. Now, let me take you back to the day when Jesus was up on that cross as he bore our sin and our shame. One of the things that would happen when a man was strung up on a Roman cross and he was dying, one of the effects of being on that cross over time, when your arms are stretched out and your hands are nailed to that beam and gravity is pulling on your torso, Historians say that the bones in your arms would literally dislocate from your shoulder blades and they would stretch your body six inches. It sounds horrible. It sounds painful. Look at the second phrase of verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. Now remember the death that I'm describing to you, a crucifixion. It's not a form of capital punishment for Jews. The form of capital punishment for Jews is stoning. But we look at verse 16. It says this, A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The New Living Translation puts it this way. It says, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now, as part of execution in the cross of the Roman Empire, your hands and feet are nailed to those beams. This is written 400 years before the first person is going to be crucified 600 years before the Roman Empire is founded. One of the last words and phrases that Jesus said from the cross is this. He said, I thirst. In verse 15, the New International Version says this. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in dust of death. Now, I don't know when the last time was when you were so thirsty. I mean, really, really thirsty. And maybe you've been out on a boat all day and you're in the sun. There's nothing left to drink. And that sun's just beating down on you and everything liquid you can drink is gone. Doesn't that sound like what you experienced when you were so very thirsty? Just an excruciating thirst? Now, you may not realize this. But Jesus never had a house. In fact, it appears that Jesus didn't have very many worldly possessions. We do see at his crucifixion he has one last remaining physical possession. It appears to be some type of a very costly garment, a tunic or a robe. Maybe it was a gift. But these godless Roman soldiers, they take that last possession he has, and he's at the end of his life, and they look at it. And they say, well, you know what? This thing's way too nice for us to cut it up and pass it out in pieces. Why don't we do this? Why don't we take some dice and roll them? Let's gamble for it. Let's see who wins it. Now, they cast lots. The Roman soldiers did. Now, you have to understand something about these Roman soldiers. They hated Jews. They were forced to be in this part of the world, this part of the Roman Empire. They hated these people. 
absolutely hated them. They hated their God. They hated any talk about this coming Messiah that was going to come. And they knew nothing about all these prophecies. But let me tell you what they did. Those soldiers fulfilled an ancient prophecy without even knowing it. Because what they did was they took that garment and they gambled for it to see who would get it. And they gave it to the winner. And the reason they did is because of this. Prophecy is only history in advance. And history is his story. And it all plays out the way he says it will. Look at verse 18. They divide my garments among themselves and they throw dice for my clothes. That's exactly what happened in Matthew 27, 35. It's just what was predicted and it's just what happened. It was predicted centuries before this form of killing was even invented. Now, one of the things that was going on that day while Jesus was being killed outside the city of Jerusalem on that hill, that place called the Skull, most good Jews were back home getting ready for the Sabbath day. Luke uh, 23, 54 records this. It says it was part of the preparation day for the Sabbath that was coming. Now, part of that preparation day was the Jews said, listen, Rome, you've got to kill people, execute them. You've got to have them down before the sun goes down. They've got to be in a grave somewhere because if they aren't buried and dead, it's going to totally affect and mess up our Sabbath day worship. And Rome will comply. And so one of the things they would do during execution is when someone was on that cross and they're hanging on to life a little too long, those soldiers would come along with something like a big baton or a bat or a beam, and they would hit that person below the knees. They'd break their legs, and that person could no longer push themselves up to catch a breath. And as they slept there, they literally would suffocate, hanging on a cross. And the commander came along, and he said, It's getting late, boys. We've got to end this thing quick. The sun's getting ready to set. Break their legs. And these two men are sitting there fighting and gasping. They come along, and they break the legs of one, and he dies. And they break the legs of another, and he dies. And they come to Jesus, and they go, Boss, I think he's already dead. All right, grab a spear. Shove him in the side. Let's see if he's dead or not. John 19.32 says this. Then the soldiers came, and they break the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Now that's really significant. Because in order for Jesus to fulfill the prophecy of the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb acceptable to God for the sacrifice of sins could not have a broken bone, could not have a blemish. And these soldiers did not know any of this, but they are fulfilling it. Verse 34, one of the soldiers with the spear pierced his side and forthwith came out there blood and water. Now look back at Psalm 22 and verse 14, what it says. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax. It melts within me. Now these prophetic details are so numerous, I don't have time to get into all of them here today. But I do want to take you quickly to one other passage that's very similar to this. It talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's in the book of Isaiah. So if you go towards the New Testament, you'll find the book of Isaiah. And we're going to look at chapter 53 very quickly. And the first verse says this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what the Lord has revealed? Do you believe these words? Do you believe what I'm telling you? That's the real question. The first half of the verse 
Isaiah asked the people who he was talking to, how important is your belief and what you believe? Oh, it is critical. It is absolutely critical because just as we'll see in a little bit, unbelief limits the power of God to heal. Do you have a part of you that needs to be healed? You may say, no, 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 I'm healthy as a thoroughbred. I don't need healing at all. And that might be true, but I can promise you this. Not all your wounds are physical. Some of you have emotional scars. Some of you have wounds on your soul, and they've been with you all your life. How are you healed? We are all wounded. We're wounded by others. We're wounded by things we do to ourselves, our poor choices. And we're all seeking a way to find some relief from the pain of life. At some point, it happens. Now listen, we're all strong. And I've seen it in y'all. You're all strong people. Bahamians are strong, resilient people. But let me tell you something. We all have limits. And there's a point, and there is a place, and there is a time when you will reach your limit. And when that happens, where do you go? Where do you go for your relief? And I know what people say around here. They told it to me this week. They said, just go soak in the salt water. It'll be all better. Right? That is the, that is the relief everybody around here seeks. But let me ask you, what about those hurts and pains the salt water can't reach? What about those ones that are too deep? I have an answer for you. There is an ointment. There is a balm, and it can bind up your broken heart. It can bind up your wounded spirit. I know this because I have experienced it. And today you may sit there, and you may say, I have wounds. Or you may say, you have none. You say, I have no hurts or no aches. But in your heart, if you're willing to be honest with yourself, if you're willing to be vulnerable to the Holy Spirit, when I ask you, are there wounds in your spirit? Those times in your past when someone said something to you, a phrase that every time you hear it today, boy, it just cuts you to the bone. That experience that you hate to recall because it reminds you of so many hurts in your past, it just stirs it up. So where do you go? And not just where do you go to forget, you know, to a bottle or to a toke or a snort or some moment of pleasure that releases you and you forget it. But that moment fades, and then you are right back where you started, only left with the same pain. I'm talking about a clean slate. I'm talking about a new beginning. I'm talking about a whole new perspective on your past. I'm talking about a new way of seeing all the things that you've suffered. I'm talking about a new relationship with God. And it's not just a relationship with the God. It's a relationship with the people around you, but not just people around you. It's a new relationship with your past. I want you to know more about the healing that I've experienced. I want you to see the face of the one who gave up all he had. Splendor, majesty, honor, worship, palace, praise, presence. And he willingly walked away from all of them just to find you, that one lost sheep in the dead of night that one that's lost and all alone and threatened by the wolves of life. The record of Isaiah, the prophet, was written 600 
years before Jesus of Nazareth was beaten with whips and his beard was plucked out and they spat on him and they crowned him with thorns and they crushed him into his head and he was rejected by the crowd for a rioting murderer named Barabbas. And he was humiliated. He, was, he carried that cross, Yay! went up the hill, and he was nailed to a tree for you and for me. And Isaiah 53, verse 3 says this. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Are you acquainted with grief? Jesus did not have to be acquainted with grief. But for you, he chose to be acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took on our infirmities and he carried our sorrows and we considered him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. Jesus took on your failures. Jesus took on your sad days. Jesus, he was struck down and he was afflicted for you and for me. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was pierced on the cross of Calvary with nails and spear. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus took on the agony of our sin. He took on the weight of all the sin of all the world, and it absolutely crushed him. The punishment that brought peace was upon him. Now, you may not realize it, but there's a war going on all around you. There's a cosmic struggle right now going on in this room. It is a struggle between good and evil. And when you and I were born, because of the sin that flows to the veins of our parents, our mothers and fathers, we were born sinners. Nobody taught me how to lie. Nobody taught me how to steal. Nobody taught me how to be selfish. Nobody taught me how to, be, to hurt other people. It just came naturally to me because I was born that way and you were born that way. We were born enemies of God. But God does not want to fight you. God wants to love you. So God arranged terms for peace. So you don't have to fight God. You can have peace in this life. Now that peace is now available to you. The peace that God offers to you and to me today, the price for that peace, for that peace treaty, that was paid with the life of Jesus on the cross. He paid the price so you and I don't have to pay that price. And by his stripes, all that Jesus suffered, you are healed. Your salvation was won in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Your healing was won that day. You ever had a healing that was there for you to take it? It's there. Have you ever taken it? Have you ever received that healing? It's already been paid. The bill's paid. You don't have to arrange for anything. It's yours for the taking. It was won for you. That healing was paid for by the suffering servant, Messiah. 
In Matthew 18, 14 through 16, Jesus goes to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed, and Jesus heals her. And soon people just start gathering around the house to be healed. And it says this in verse 16. When evening came, they brought many to Jesus who were under the power of demons. And he drove out the spirits with the word and restored the health all who were sick. And thus he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He himself took in order to carry away our weaknesses and our infirmities. He bore our diseases. Remember, the question I ask you from the first verse of Isaiah 53. Do you believe the words I'm telling you? In Mark 6, there's this crazy story. Jesus, he went down to his hometown. He was accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath day came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many heard him, and they were astonished. They said, where did this man get these ideas? And they asked, what is the wisdom he's been given? Is this not this, this guy we know? How can he perform these miracles? Isn't this the carpenter's son, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Judas and Joseph and Simon and aren't his sisters here with us as well? And they took offense at Jesus. And verse 4 says, Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household, a prophet is without honor. So Jesus, the Messiah, listen to this, verse 5. He could not perform any miracles there, except he could lay hands on a few of the sick and heal them. But he was amazed at their unbelief. Your unbelief limits the power of God to work in your life. Jesus Christ himself was limited by the lack of faith by these people. It was displayed on all those people he encountered. So I say to you, or you say to me, I don't have a lot of faith. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know if I can be healed. I need to be healed, but I have unbelief. I have good news for you. The same thing happened to somebody else when they met Jesus in Mark chapter 9. There was a boy with an evil spirit, and they brought him to Jesus. And Jesus' disciples were not able to heal this boy. But the father loved his child. And the father wanted him to be healed and have function in his right mind. And Jesus said in verse 19, O believing, unbelieving generation, how long must I remain with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him, and Jesus seen the spirit immediately. The spirit threw the boy into convulsions, and he fell to the ground. He's rolling around. He's foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the father said, from childhood. Now, some of you are still dealing with an issue from your childhood. Aren't you ready just to stop it? Aren't you ready just to end it? Aren't you ready to have a change of direction in your life, a new path? And the father said this. It often throws him into the fire and into the waters, trying to kill him. But you, you, but if you, Jesus, you can do anything, have compassion on him and help. Your enemy wants to destroy you. He's trying so hard to slow you down and hold you back. Jesus is having compassion on you today. And Jesus said this. He kind of, I think he kind of laughed when he said it. He said, <laughs> if I can, Jesus echoed what the father had said. And he said this, all things are possible to those who believe. If you can, those words were echoed. The loving frustration of a father who wanted to see his child restored. A family member who sees the frustration of their own flesh and blood, blood suffer day after day and night after night as things are trying to destroy them. But he wonders, is this one too far gone? Can God help this one? 
And in verse 24, immediately the brother's father cried out. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now, that may be you, my friend. I do believe, but help my unbelief. And I want to tell you something that's really remarkable you may have never thought about. Every one of the disciples of Jesus doubted him. Every one. To a person. They all doubted him. And especially when they saw him die on the cross. But the good news of your salvation is there's not an entrance exam for you to enjoy forgiveness. All you have to do is be willing to believe. That's the first step. God is willing to receive you and give you a new chance and a fresh start. And when Jesus saw the crowd that they were running, he rebuked the unclean spirit, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you to come out of him and never come back again. And he shrieked and convulsed violently, and the spirit came out, and the boy became like a corpse. So the people around him said, he's dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand, and he helped him to his feet, and he stood up. Now, when you come to Jesus, some of your friends are going to shriek, and they're going to scream, and they're going to say you're dead. And what you can say to them, and they'll say, that Jesus stuff, you ain't living, brother. That's what they'll say. But that's not true. You will be more alive that day than you have ever been before in your life. Let me ask you a question. And I'll close. Who would you become if you asked God to change one part of your life each week? Who would you become if you ask God just to change one part of your life each week? What's hindering you from going deeper from God? Is it doubt? God can fix that. Is it doubt that God can't fix you? Is it doubt that you don't believe the words I say? What would your life look like if you came to Jesus and just said, fix this part of me that's broken, fix it. I don't want to have this part of me anymore. I can't do it. Please change it. Peter says these words in chapter 2. Verse 21, for to this you were called before Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you could follow. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they heaped abuse on him, he did not retaliate. He suffered and he made no threats. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the trees so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by his stripes, you are healed. Are you willing to ask him to do what you cannot do for yourself? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so very grateful that you love us enough to chase us down through the centuries and bring to us the validating truth of who you are and what you are and what you say through this wonderful book we call the Bible. And I pray, God, now there's anybody here who's heard these words today and they say, God, I, I got to give it up. I got to make it different. It's got to be different. God, just let them have the courage to raise their hands to you as a symbol that they want to be better. They want a different path. They want to have healing, and they're willing to take that healing today. So, Father God, give courage to us that we can live not only in our salvation, but we can live in the healing that you have won for us. And I ask it, please, Lord, to be done in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.